Addictions can be a way of dealing with stress, but actually they can cause an awful lot of stress. So today I'm going to talk to fellow therapist Noel McDermott, uh, who's also a specialist in this area, about this difficult subject. But first of all, I'm going to ask Noel, what is it that stresses him out on a day-to-day -day basis? Oh, so many things. I have to be very careful about it. But I suppose the biggest stress in my life is my admin. Oh. Having to do my admin. I can't bear it. Oh. <laughs> sort of, I, I do that classic thing of I put it off and I put it off and I make it worse than it needs to be. So I don't handle it very well, I'm afraid. Yeah. And, and so when you're handling it better... Uh, so that's a stressor that you kind of make worse because you just yeah. keep delaying it. Do you yeah. have a way of managing it or you've not worked that one out yet? I'm beginning to work it out and I sort of do a bit of reframing of it and I talk myself down and I set a period of time aside in my diary and I say whatever happens during that time is my admin and I yeah. sort of take the pressure off myself for getting it all done and I just do whatever I can yeah. and I punctuate my day with these things rather than push the, push it on. Yeah, so I love I love the idea of punctuating the day. Yeah. Um, so people might not know what a reframe is. Uh, do you want to explain what you what you mean by that? Yeah, there's ways that we can look at things. Um, like the frame around a picture affects the picture. Yeah. If you change the frame, you change the picture. So if you change your perspective on something, you reframe it. Um, you have a different way of looking at it um, and that can give you new insights and a new relationship to that thing uh, particularly if you wanted to change a relationship from one where you're oppressed or victimized by something into one where you feel a bit more empowered and a bit more self-motivated um, and you can often reframe in that way so a good example is I used to be afraid of flying and now I'm excited by it so similar physical reactions, similar physical reactions, but just yeah. a very different way of thinking about it. Yeah. Uh, and now flying is fine for me. Yeah, yeah, because fear and, and um, excitement do have the same, um, uh, what's the word that I want? The same- um, Physiological responses. Thank you very much. Things That's in your body. exactly what I yeah. meant. <laughs> Yeah. So uh, just a, a little tip then. Uh, I like to, I don't like admin very much. Um, I have what I call a power hour. Ah. I love the, so a reframe is that it's a power hour rather than. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I get that. That's great. And I give myself an hour once a week where I just do all the things I really hate. And then <laughs> hopefully if I can do something I really like afterwards. So it's kind of like when I've done that, I can then do this. And right. it, it just makes it uh, a lot easier. That's a good idea. I'll give it a go. Actually. Yeah, power hour. It's, it's, kind of it's always a good good to give yourself treats, I think. During Absolutely. The day. Yeah. <laughs> Which kind of maybe segues into, into the subject matter because, oh. you know, addictions, um, you know, when is it a treat and when is it an addiction? Because I think that's how people slide, isn't it? Yeah. And I've said it very simply put, it's there's no blood test for it, so we can't tell you. Um, like we could tell you if you've got cancer or something like that. It, it doesn't work that way. It, it's about the impact on your life. Um, and only you and the people around you will know. And when you start to have negative consequences and you find that you can't stop using, um, that's when it's become addiction, really. So it's a sort of psychosocial measure as opposed to some sort of biological measure. Um, but there are risk factors involved which um, are indicated about 
who might be more likely to be at risk of developing these things. But some of the indicators that you've gone too far are that, um, you know, you, you start to have problems such as drunk driving, for example. It's, it's fairly well researched now that the only people who drink and drive are those people who have problem drinking. Yeah. Most people understand that you just don't do it. So if anything like that happens to you, that should be a real wake up call. Uh, absolutely. Um, other things, if you can't remember stuff, so if you go out using and you black out, as we call it, and you can't remember, that's another wake up call um, because you have to be using pretty heavily to sort of go into a blackout. Uh, other indicators are other people have concerns. Um, yeah. Most people just don't have concerns about anybody else's using, even if they have a heavy night with them, it's just a laugh. But if people are sort of be going, are you okay around your using? That should be a real alarm bell because um, other people will notice it first. So coming into problems with the law, having problems with finances, having health problems uh, are often an early sign. So um, maybe your GP has noticed something and has asked you questions about it. Again, that should be a wake up call. So those types of indicators suggest that it's gone too far. So the interesting, well, they're all interesting, but you know where uh, other people become concerned, but depending on what your uh, addicted to and of course there are lots of types of addictions so you're alluding there to uh, alcohol and drugs which are the common ones but there are also other ones like uh, people addicted to online shopping or uh, sex or uh, gambling or yeah. even being Absolutely. right you know there's a lot we, of we divide those into we call those process addictions okay and the others substance addictions so substance problems and process problems so food sex money yeah. Those are the broad categories, work, yeah. those types of things. Um, so gym would come into it as part of yeah. generally a process addiction associated with food, for example, would often come with problematic gym use um, because people are trying to purge, what we call purge. So yeah. they might eat food and then want to get rid of the calories and they do obsessive um, sort of gym stuff. And again, you know when you're in problems with that stuff is when you're thinking, oh, I can eat that many calories because I can then do this, this and this after it, which is not a normal healthy relationship to food. I mean, yeah. a normal healthy relationship to food is I feel hungry, yeah. I'm going to eat, I'm going to enjoy it, um, and then to get on with your life and not be obsessed about yeah. the number of calories that you've taken in or what it's physically making you feel or what you have to do to compensate for it, which looks at the broader concept of this idea that what it, what addictions do is they help us regulate uncomfortable feelings. Yes, absolutely. And that's what people are doing uh, with their addictions. And that's why they become so powerful and they, they take over. And there are all sorts of neurological processes, which we don't have time to go into, but they become reinforcing habitual behaviors um, mm. through sort of neuroplasticity. Mm. and because of the alterations that take place to the brain because mm. of using but essentially what they do is they help us deal with um, emotional states that initially we find difficult but then later on as we become more dependent they help us deal with all emotional states um, whatever that emotional state is mm. um, whether it's a good one or a negative one will be a reason to use Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Celebrating or punishing or <laughs> numbing. Um, so so exactly. I do a lot of eating disorder work and, 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 and uh, one, I do a little bit of addictions. Uh, but one of the things is, is about obsession, becoming obsessive about things, isn't it? This kind of fixation on that is the only coping mechanism for what's going on in life and being very um, 
uh, detached from yourself and your needs and just being fixated. But just coming back to something that you said about people becoming concerned, if you're, uh, if it's a substance addiction, sometimes you surround yourself with people with the same problem. So they're not going to be the ones that are concerned. They're going to become your best buddies because they're people that you can use with as well. And it might be your wife or your partner or your family that's saying, you know, um, this is the third job you've lost. Have you not woken up yet? (laughs) We all need that thing in our life, which I call the critical friend. Yeah. We have to have people in our lives that we are close enough to uh, so that they understand us and have a great insight, but are also courageous enough to tell us things that we may not want to hear. Um, And that's just a basic safety tool that I think every human being on the planet needs. Uh, Shakespeare used to write about it in plays, you know, the the fool to the king was always that person who could say things to the monarch um, and get away with it, but it was the person the monarch needed to hear. So we all need that. And if you don't have that in your life ask yourself why yeah well I don't know I I think that uh you know though you're right in what you say we need it but often people shy away from it and not looking at what is the reason behind what they've said is it to hurt you or to harm you or to help you Uh, but I think when people are in that addictive process they just see everything as a threat uh, or, or an insult or something like that. I think what most people don't understand who are non-addicts is the obsession that the addict has comes from them genuinely believing that if they stop doing what they're doing, they will die. They yeah. see it very much as a survival mechanism. Yeah. And that's to do with the neurological underpinning mm-hmm. um, and points to why some people become addicted and some people don't. And why we can become addicted only to a relatively narrow range of things. So mm-hmm. we don't become addicted to water, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the reason for that is it doesn't activate these neurological pathways yeah. that all these process and substance addictions do. Yeah. And the neurological pathways that they're hijacking um, are one around survival mechanisms or species level survival mechanisms so they all are associated in neurologically with things like uh, reproduction relationship food etc etc there so for example um, uh, um, cocaine uses exactly the same neural pathways as sex which is why the the two are often associated Um, but reproduction being a very important species level survival activity and a number of things are like that and so it's the hijacking of these neurological survival mechanisms and what happens is because of the reinforcing process by habitually using something and then the alterations to your brain the obsession the fear of death the fear of that you're going to die if you don't do this thing just grows and grows over time so the addict becomes more and more manic and more and more obsessive about it and and the more you use the more you need to get the same level of effect yeah that's because of um receptors for various um things and so what happens is say it's dopamine is one of the um, receptors and dopamine is implicated in addiction a lot Say there were only four dopamine receptors in the brain. There are a lot more, but let's imagine there's four and you flood it with dopamine. What will happen is one of the receptors will shut down as a way of indicating I'm flooded, please stop. But because of the obsession of the addict, they don't stop, they keep going. But what happens is because there's only three receptors now, they're getting less of a hit. So they increase the amount of the drug by a quarter to try and get the same hit. And of course, the inevitable happens, another receptor shots yeah, down. Da, da, da. And then you get into that vicious cycle. So. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, so, so dopamine is, is something that we all enjoy, yeah. um, but as you say, implicated in addictions, but there are other, there are non-addictive ways of, of getting uh, yeah. dopamine in your system, isn't there? Yeah, there's lots of ways. I mean, getting a hug from somebody is one of the best ways. Yeah. Talking oh, kindly right now, to somebody. Never mind another time. <laughs> well, talking kindly to somebody that you care about. Yeah. Um, sort of eye contact. There's a massive yeah. number of receptors for dopamine in the eyes, for example. Yeah. So, you know, when somebody's feeding a baby and they're gazing into each other's eyes, mm -hmm. they're just giving each other these lovely hits of things like dopamine and oxytocin and Absolutely. all of this sort of stuff. It's um, yeah. very healthy human interactional ways are, of getting um, all of these things. Yeah, uh, and, and it's well known that dopamine responds well to uh, small senses of achievement. So giving yourself little goals and working yeah. towards them makes you feel kind of empowered as well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what is it that makes one person vulnerable to being addicted and somebody else uh, mm -hmm. might use once or twice and it just doesn't affect them at all? So the, the biggest risk factor is a pattern of using. Um, so if you use something a lot, uh, you're more likely to trigger any underlying risk factors that exist in you. So moderate and infrequent use of any sort of uh, addictive uh, substance or process is a good idea. Um, so healthy use of stuff is the thing that's going to keep you safest. Um, but it's a mixture of nature and nurture. So some of it is inheritable. Now, it's not inheritable in the sense of it's determined. But for example, if one of your parents or a sibling or a grandparent or an uncle, et cetera, if they exhibit any one of these range of behaviors, um, your risk has increased uh, by a certain amount. So if it was a parent, it's by about 40%. If it's a, a grandparent, something like 20%. If it's an uncle, it's something like 20%. If it's a sibling, it's very high. Uh, that, um, but it's not deterministic. It's what's called epigenetic uh, or there's a potential in you. Yeah. And the things that will switch you, uh, your decisions, isn't it? You can decide yeah. not to do it, uh, knowing that that's a, that's a, a vulnerability in you. Or you can. Yeah. So some people are quite fatalistic. Well, my parents didn't, so that's what I do as well. As it's, if they, they've got no control. It's if, not true. You, see, yeah. you can sort of manage your life so that it's if you live in a much healthier way, um, you reduce your risk significantly, very significantly. Yeah. So don't use very much um, or don't use at all is a good idea. Um, and then just be thoughtful about how you live a healthy life. And in particular, um, thinking about things like stress, because stress is a big factor. Uh, stress, trauma, anxiety, uh, these things are big factors in whether these uh, internal switches are on the on position or the off position. Yeah. And so twin studies, for example, looking at things like um, psychosis and identical twins are genetically identical. So if one twin has it, the other twin should have it. Yeah. Uh, but in these studies, they show that if one twin, say, for example, has psychosis, which has a similar sort of trans mitable rate genetically um, only the other twin only has a 50 50 chance of developing it and the the factor that changes the risk factor here is whether the other twin has good coping mechanisms in place yeah. and it's so, the coping mechanisms which are the crucial thing yeah so the coping mechanisms are kind of um absolutely key aren't they if you haven't got that then you'd be your coping mechanism your coping mechanism will be the substance Yes, uh, which right. of course doesn't help you cope it just helps you forget or not yeah. feel things yeah. there's no coping involved in that 
The problem with that, that path using a process or a substance um, is it substitutes from what we are designed to do, which is to get comfort from another human being. It creates a barrier in forming that relationship. Now we are social animals and what we're designed to do when we are upset is to seek comfort from another human being. Um, and our frontal lobes, our brains are all set up for this. Um, and so relating to another person, we get lots of reward chemicals and we then get neurological growth when we do it. Now, if you place a substance or a process in between that relationship, uh, it becomes a vicious cycle where you become more dependent on the substance, particularly as you become um, less available for a relationship and also you develop then the antisocial behaviors which make people avoid you. So you have this vicious cycle where you become more and more isolated from the thing that will help you, which is relationship, warm, loving, caring relationship is what will help you become more and more isolated and forced into a greater dependence on the addiction uh, as a coping mechanism. And that's the path of self-destruction really that describes how addiction works. And the path out of it, of course, is the opposite. Stop using, start relating to people. Yeah, so uh, that's really interesting. So speaking very uh, in a generalist way, yeah. um, uh, in a general way, sorry, uh, women find it easier to relate to somebody when they're having problems. In, you know, they like to talk about their problems. So, um, and, and this has been well researched. Men tend, and this is, of course, is not all men and all women uh, fall in this bracket, but men tend to find it very difficult to show any level of vulnerability and won't talk about their problems. So um, I'm sure, I, I'm only guessing, but there's probably more addict, addictions. Than, no. Traditionally, addiction rates amongst men have been higher than amongst women, but it is changing. Yeah. And the reason it's changing is because roles in society are changing. And particularly as women become more into the workforce and uh, move on up the ladder, uh, then the traditional things that are used by people under very stressful circumstances start to be used by women as much as men. Yeah. Um, and so we're finding that, yes, those social factors, the social norming of women into being more social have been protective factors. But as society changes, that's maybe less of a protective factor these days. And also there were lots of social um, prohibitions against women using drug, drink and drugs, which no longer exist. So again, over the last 20 years, I think we've seen a shift in that um, as the workforce has changed and those prohibitions have changed. But it is still the case that men outstrip women in terms of yeah. addiction. So picking up on what you said there, Noel, about the it's switching because women are, are, are kind of getting higher level positions in, in, uh, in business, which is as it should be. But I'm wondering if some of that is because you have to kind of pretend everything's okay. You have to pretend to be strong. You have to pretend to be coping. Yeah. Otherwise they're gonna say, oh, you know, she's not coping. And, uh, and then you get uh, put down the ladder yeah. again. Uh, Without so a doubt, uh, the more isolated you become, whatever yeah. reason yeah. you're becoming isolated, whether it's protect your image, whether it's because you're actually in a shark infested business waters, whatever the reason is that you're becoming more isolated. Yeah. Uh, if you have those uh, predispositions towards addictive using, you're more at risk. Mm -hmm. And so anybody, at whatever level you are in society, you have to be very, very thoughtful about having appropriate social support around you. Yeah. This is the thing that will save people every single time. Yeah, this is why a lot of really successful people have a coach, because there's somebody yeah. you can offload to get perspective exactly. on. Exactly. 
Exactly. Um, it's so important. Yeah. So what is it that makes it so difficult? Well, uh, yeah, what is it that makes it so difficult for people to overcome an addiction? Um, I think because you get into that vicious cycle where um, so if you become obsessed, you're not aware of the obsession. Addicts aren't aware that they're obsessed. Everybody else can see it, but you can't. It's like any mental health condition. The person who has it lacks insight into their condition. Absolutely, yeah. And so that's true of all mental health conditions, yeah. whether it's anxiety, depression, psychosis, addiction, any eating disorders, whatever it is, yeah. the person with it doesn't have it. And so the initial step is to try and get somebody to understand there is a problem. Mm-hmm. And that's where this trusted relationship comes in and timing. Mm-hmm. So studies have shown, for example, that uh, one of the best relationships for encouraging people into recovery is your GP. Oh, really? Yeah. Yep. One of the highest success rates for getting into recoveries, you go and see a GP and you say, I'm really struggling, doc. And the doctor says, is it time to think about this? And because of the relationship you've had with that person, sometimes lifelong, you know, with some people, Mm -hmm. uh, if they say it, it can often open a door. And particularly if that GP then has the phone number of treatment services, for example, and can make the phone call with you. There's a very high, so 70% of people in AA, for example, have arrived because um, their GP um, made that call. Um, And so it's a really, really successful route, but anybody can potentially be that if it's the right timing and at the right moment. Yeah, uh, I think timing timing is really, really important. People have to have that readiness, haven't they? Yeah, and it's also, it's just that thing about, um, you know, that moment at which somebody's vulnerable enough, they've allowed you in, um, and you can just pop a suggestion in. Yeah. You don't need to use a sledgehammer. <laughs> You're just dropping a little seed in there yeah. um, and, and allowing the person to go away and think about it and give them some hope that, because often addicts are very hopeless. Mm. They're, they're caught up without, in a very... Meaning without hope rather than hopeless. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so you give a little bit of hope. Another good way is um, to encourage listening to stories of other people in recovery. Um, one of the big transformations is that often addicts will feel very, very isolated, very alone. It's difficult to describe just how alone they feel. Um, and, uh, and if you are an addict still using and you listen to the story of somebody in recovery and they start saying things that only addicts do and the rest of us just go oh that's a bit scary Um, but while the person who's caught up in it hears it they go that's just like me Mm. that person's like me that story's like me and then the person goes on to say and then I stopped and then my life got really good Mm. and then the you stopped and you got really that doesn't compute and that dissonance that cognitive dissonance allows a space to open up a possibility a potential in the person listening Mm -hmm. Uh, and so that's often why say in addiction services as they have things called peer support workers which are people in recovery that can do that sort of thing that can share that story that personal experience which often professionals are wary of doing because they have their professional boundaries but the non-professional peers can often do a fantastic job so in terms of the best thing people can do, there's the, the first thing you've got to be self-aware yeah. uh, or, or have that moment of awareness. And sometimes people have to get to the point where it's so bad they cannot not notice. Yeah. Having a, a good relationship with your GP, hopefully. Yeah. Um, 
and AA or NA are, are really terrific support yeah. networks. Yeah. How did that? How do those sit in with getting a personal therapist? Uh, it should be no problem at all. If you find a personal therapist who has a problem with those things, they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> So leave them, yeah. don't use them. Yeah. And uh, things like 12-step recovery groups are now part of NICE guidelines. So if you read the guidelines on treating... And NICE is National Institute of Clinical Excellence. Just Yeah, that's the sort of guidelines that uh, any reputable clinician will use. Yeah. Um, so if you look at the guidelines for uh, um, alcohol treatment, uh, referral into AA is now mentioned. It's also SMART is mentioned, which is another peer-to-peer. -peer. I tend to use peer-to-peer -peer networks because I don't think we need to advertise a particular one. There's a variety of peer-to-peer -peer networks and these peer-to-peer -peer networks work um, because they are informal groups of support that can offer much more than a professional. Now, a professional working in this field should understand that and be able to work with it. And studies have shown that when you bring professional services and peer support, support services together and you work together with them you improve efficacy by over 40 percent in your treatment because I, I guess the individual is working on that person's personal stuff that may perhaps have led them into well usually what's happened is that the addicts will have either uh, acquired through their using mental health problems such as anxiety depression trauma they will have developed unhealthy mechanisms in terms of relating to people. Um, they may well have attachment disorders. They may well have childhood disorders that, um, that were traumatizing. They may have inherited various conditions. So the professional should be doing that assessment and looking at those things because uh, non-professionals can't really take those issues on board. Yeah. And the professional should be working with the patient to understand those things and understand the treatments for them and then apply the treatments. Now, the psychotherapist may not be able to apply all the treatments. So you may need a medic, for example, for some of the mental health issues, or you may need a GP to prescribe antidepressants. Uh, but those types of things can't be done by non-professional peer support groups. Yeah. What the peer support groups do is they provide the day-to-day -day support yeah. and often the voluntary support, lots of people that you can call, lots of meetings that you can go to, and they're all online at the moment, yeah. uh, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that sort of um, seamless 24 seven support comes from the peer groups. Mm -hmm. And the professional holds those boundaries and looks at what is the rightful domain of the professional, mm -hmm. uh, while also encouraging and supporting the person into the peer support networks. And the great thing about that is that you then have an, a natural exit route from the professional support, because of course, professional support should in most cases, if not all, be time limited, uh, not sort of endless for somebody's life. Um, I can't think of many situations unless it's a very severe condition in which you would want to be looking at that. Generally as a professional, you want people to move on. And these peer networks are closer to real life than a professional. Um, and so are really ideal as these transitional stepping stone places and may also be the, something that somebody wants to do for the rest of their life, to be honest. Yeah, absolutely. OK, that's really helpful. Any final tip for people who are uh, wondering whether they're uh, at risk or not? Well, try stopping and see what happens. Yeah, Except if you're drinking. If you're drinking chaotically, you need medical advice to stop. It's very dangerous. But try stopping and see what happens. See whether you get irritable, discontented, fed up, angry with people. See whether you start to function worse. If you do, you may not be an addict, but there's a problem. 
because wow. you're clearly using it for some sort of emotional regulation. Anytime you use a process or a substance to regulate feelings is a risk. You should always, if you're feeling uncomfortable about something, you should always go to another human being. Yeah. That's the bottom line here. Yeah. So do any of these things, if you like, go shopping, splurge, but don't do it because you're feeling angry. Don't do it because you're feeling depressed. Mm. If you're feeling angry or depressed, go and talk to a mate mm. and then go shopping mm. and take the emotion out of it. Never do anything like this emotionally. I always talk about the emotions are there for a reason. They're calling yeah. your attention to a situation. Absolutely. Shopping or drinking does not resolve the actual yeah. problem it just uh, defers the problem for a while yeah and it may increase the problem to be honest if you get it, into that it habit. Does. yeah absolutely okay thank you so much that's been really interesting uh i'd like to ask you now if there's a book that you'd like to recommend our, our viewers that you found yeah. uplifting or enlightening yeah i read it a long time ago i was in my 20s so that was a long time ago there were still dinosaurs walking the earth at times like that as an undergraduate it's called zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance and it was the first book it's a novel it's a story it's based on this guy's life but it's a sort of autobiographical novel um, and it's the first novel book even any piece of literature that I read that dealt with men and mental health and this guy has some significant mental health problems that he overcomes and then tries to uh, teach his son some of the resilience factors that he's learned um, and um, it was very touching at the time I didn't realize just how much I was struggling um, but that book sort of opened me up to, oh, actually, I'm really identifying this guy. I think I might have some problems. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that it's a novel and it yeah. helped you. Yeah. Um, I think that's fantastic. And and so, so identifying with the protagonist as well helped Absolutely. you to open up to um, yeah. hopefully looking at how you can overcome whatever was challenging you at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Noel, thank you ever so much for your time today. Uh, I hope everybody's enjoyed the interview. It's been very enlightening. And if you have, do please share. You never know what difference it could make to somebody else. And if you've got any comments, please comment below. And uh, if you haven't liked, the, uh, if you haven't subscribed already, please do so. Thank you very much.